to the Web 2.0 Show with your hosts, Josh Owens and Chris Saylor. We're a show about the new web, the latest thoughts and technology behind internet development and content delivery. Welcome to episode 24. We have Cameron Mall with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Cameron. Where are you from? Who you've worked for in the past, that sort of thing. Hey, guys. I am... Uh I actually grew up in San Francisco, in the San Francisco area. I moved to Utah for school and whatnot. Uh, went through school, and at the same time, uh, kind of got involved in, in web design, kind of fell into it. Uh, had a family at the same time. I've got a wife and four boys, Everest, Edison, Isaac, and Hudson. You know, people ask us all the time how we named our boys, and it really came about, uh, you know, we wanted to give them something to live up to. It would be nice <laughs> if they want to grow up and be like mom and dad but we said you know what if we what if we name them after a landmark or you know a famous figure or something like that and so of course you've got the names you got Everest like Mount Everest Edison like Thomas Edison uh, Isaac and there's Isaac uh, Newton you've got a famous figure in the, in the Bible Isaac as well and then Hudson after the great explorer Henry Hudson and so uh, they certainly keep us busy between projects and after them as well but uh, no, go ahead. Oh, I just said I bet I've got I've got one son, and that's enough right now. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's fun though. I mean, it's good to take a break in the afternoon or at night and play some ball with them. All of them love baseball, and so you know, I'll take a break and, and go pitching a ball for a little bit, and it gets my mind off of work. And uh, you know, it's amazing how much inspiration, the kind of ideas you get when you step away from something. You'd think it'd be the opposite, right? You're so involved and immersed in a project. I found when you step away from that for a little bit, you go play ball for outside for a while or something, you start to look at things differently when you come back to your desk and, and sit down to, to tackle the project again. So it's actually been, I think, in some ways helpful to have the boys as somewhat of a distraction to go to and, and regenerate the mind, and, so to speak. But uh, as far as my history in terms of employment... Um, I got hired on with the dot-com company back in, in the boom days, actually just before the collapse, back in 1999. I had started designing websites around 1998, so just a year before that. I uh, got hired on with a company named IDI back in Utah, and they later went public. Uh, of course, somehow survived the dot-com fallout. I went from lowly web designer to senior web designer to creative director with them over the course of about four and a half years. And I think that really set the foundation for my career. A lot of what we did in terms of processes and and, uh, technical knowledge and so on developed during that experience enough to, to really lay a good foundation for everything I'm doing now. After that, I got my degree in marketing in school. I thought for sure I was going to go into marketing. Um, and so I actually experimented with that a bit after leaving this dot-com. I made a proactive move to leave them and then go work with a, it was actually a web-based uh, medical office software at the time uh, company. And they were, they were web-based, right? And so I was doing a lot of marketing for them, a lot of copywriting, a lot of print and, and web design. And about a year into that, just figured that's not where I wanted to be. And so at that point, uh, it was a a difficult decision at the time because we had three kids. We were just about to have our fourth. And I was toying between staying with marketing and going back to something I really loved, and that was design and blogging 
and, uh, you know, authoring articles, conference speaking, and so on. I mean, that had just barely started at the same time, and we were getting pulled both ways. And, and finally, we said, you know, we've, we've just got to jump, make the jump to freelance and get back into web design and make a career out of that. And I think that's probably the best choice we could have made. Did you still keep up with, like, marketing? Like, I like to read Seth Godin's blog and, uh, and uh, Kathy Sierra's Creating Passionate Users. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I see myself being continually entrenched somewhat in marketing. You know, it's, it's good that, that I guess I got lucky is what I'm trying to say. Marketing and design coexist rather well. And so I'm able to apply a lot of the techniques and knowledge that I gained in school in marketing over to design about understanding the user and what makes a, a user tick and so on. And so naturally, I still find myself reading Seth as well, of course, and other, um, whether they be online or offline, resources for staying attached to that. I certainly don't see myself ever being completely disconnected from marketing because really as a designer, you can't, but you've got to understand again, what, what makes consumers tick and, and uh, just how the, the from initial, initial contact to purchase or whatever the call to action might be, uh, marketing plays a great deal or I guess helps us understand a great deal of that process from, from initial contact to purchase. Now, before you, you had talked about uh, you started getting into web design in college, um, did, did you actually learn about standards in college and, and how did you go from there? Well, let's see. I got I got started in 1998. Um, that was really my first exposure to the web, so a bit later than, than a lot of my colleagues. Um, and I was actually doing it just to help my father out at the time. He was kind of selling uh, some camping gear on the side. And I said, well, why don't we put a, a website together and see if anything comes of that. And so we did that. And, I, of course, I had to, to learn HTML and everything that comes along with that. And so it was a very painful process, but... <laughs> Uh, that's kind of where it began. And um, as far as the whole standards movement and so on, the first conference I went to was in 2001, I believe. And that was my first exposure to Jeffrey Zeldman and standards at that time. And so I came back from that, that conference. I was with my team. I, I had a team of, I think, uh, about 10 designers at the time. That team, of course, was later downsized all the way to two. Uh, once the fallout began and so on. But we came back and said, hey, hey, I heard about standards at this conference, and I don't fully understand it yet, but I think we need to look at it. And it has something to do with not using tables for layout and these other things. Well, long story short, we didn't really do much with it. And I went back later the next year to the same conference. I think this was Web Design World up in Seattle. So I went back the second year, 2002, or it may have been 2001. I don't remember the dates at this point, but... Long story short, we went back to second year, and there again was Zeldman uh, preaching web standards. And at that point, I said, you know what, guys, we've really got to get on board. I came back and said, we've got to get on board with this. I, I still don't understand it, but I want to know more. And at that point, my team's interest was also beginning to be peaked. And so sometime after that, probably about six, month, six months after that, we had developed our first uh, standards-compliant website, if you will. And from there, it was just, it was no looking back at that point. We, we fully understood this was the way to do it. Um, the benefits are too too, uh, too large and too great to ever go back to the previous style. Naturally, it was a difficult shift, right? I mean, going from tables and, and uh, 
brake tags and spacer gifts and all of this was a difficult shift. But once we made that shift, it was uh, it was just night and day. Yeah, I actually felt a kind of relief to move away from tables. It's like, oh, thank God, there's a, you know, even with all the cross-browser CSS issues, it was still, it, it just seemed better, you know, it felt better. Yeah, and I think I think the people that have a tough time shifting are those that see tables uh, kind of as a crutch, and, and it's something they're comfortable with. And uh, But you're absolutely right. I mean, once you make the shift, there's no way I could go back to, to creating a website with a table. It would just be so restrictive and so so painful. I mean, I, the <laughs> flexibility of CSS is unbelievable when you think of absolute positioning and, positioning and all of these other techniques for producing a layout. I just can't imagine going back to tables. You've certainly come a long way. I mean, you went all the way from just learning it a couple of years ago to writing a book. You wrote a book with uh, Andy Budd and uh, someone else. That was Simon Collison over in the UK. How uh, did you guys get started on that? You know, Andy Budd and I, I wouldn't say we go way back, but we've known each other for a couple of years. I think it was just uh, through email, through linking to each other's articles and so on. And so uh, I think it was one day about a year ago or so, he contacted me saying, hey, I'm, I'm writing a book. I'd like to know if you'd be interested in, in contributing a chapter and a case study site to it. Now, prior to that, probably about six months to that, I had actually been contacted by two publishers myself. And uh, I had my three kids at the time. And I ended up saying no to both of them. I said, you know, I, I've talked to people who've written books. I know the level of commitment that is involved. And I just don't think I can do it. And so as lucrative as it was at the time to to author an entire 300-page book. I just couldn't say yes to it. It was too much for me to commit to. So when Andy came along and said, hey, I'm authoring a book. Would you like to do a single chapter? I said, you know, this is a perfect way to, to get my feet wet, see if I can go on to, to author a full book um, without really the commitment of doing so. And uh, fortunately, it turned out to be exactly what I expected it to be, an excellent opportunity to, I guess, garnish or, or earn the label of author without having to dive into an entire book. One of our um, listeners' favorite topics is uh, is actually um, the tools and stuff. What's your what's your favorite tools for web de- uh, web design? Well, I mean, beyond the basics, uh, Photoshop, I use Illustrator a lot, of course, for, for icons or, or wireframes or things along those lines. Um, it's really... Standard for the most part. I've been a Mac user since the 8.6 days. Um, uh, you know, before that, of course, I think we were all exposed to Mac in one form or another. But I, I guess I'm officially a Mac user since, uh, you know, since the I guess '99 somewhere around there. So I grew up, in, so to speak, using BB Edit. Uh, a couple of years later, grabbed on to Transmit for for a lot of FTP. Uh, you know processes, and uh, I use a lot of web-based apps as well just for running business, like Blink Sale, uh, Backpack, uh, Basecamp, of course, things like that. But for the most part, I mean, what I use day-to-day is nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I, when I would hire designers, for example, I really didn't care what qualifications they had in terms of, of software they knew. Um you know, they come to you with certificates. I've got this certificate as a Photoshop expert or something along those lines. I, I didn't really care about that. I wanted to know what they could do with the tools. I didn't care if you used uh, Microsoft Paint, for example. I mean, if you could <laughs> produce something that that really executed in terms of, of design and, and user principles and so on, 
you use the application you want at that point, and let's just make it work. I mean, that was my philosophy. So I hadn't really spent too much time looking beyond the basic tools that, that the average web designer might use. Yeah. Um, Josh and I actually just switched a couple months ago. I've always had a Mac in the family. My wife's always used a Mac since, like, 7.5. But um, just for work, my, my primary computer's always been a PC until a couple months ago when I switched wholesale to the Mac. And I actually find I'm more productive on a Mac. It just seems to flow better. Yeah, I mean, boy, there's arguments both ways, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, I actually, for work, it was an interesting run for about four years for me. I would use a PC at work, right? And then I'd come home and do all my side work and so on on a Mac. And so I got to see firsthand what it's like to do web design using a PC and a Mac equally. And... Um, you know, I, of course, loved going home to my Mac and enjoyed the software, the, the workflows you're saying. Uh, I would preach Mac, of course, to my colleagues and so on. <laughs> but the only thing I found when, when jumping from the PC to the Mac was, was HomeSite. I loved HomeSite um, and the features it offered over BBEdit. And, and when I'd go home at night, I'd miss that. And, and you, of course, couldn't, I don't think you can still, get HomeSite. And they've all but minimized that due to really pushing Dreamweaver. Uh, but that was an app I loved to use. And, and in terms of the PC, that was the one app that I, I just died to have on the Mac and never got it. Um, earlier you talked about kind of stepping away from a problem and coming back to it and, and maybe finding a different way to tackle a problem. Where do you find sources for inspiration like... Uh, color choices or font choices or other types of inspirations for layouts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, for quite some time now, I've been trying to get around to making time to redesign my own site. I mean, it's been two, almost two years now uh, since that design was put together. I guess about a year and a half. And uh, felt it was time for an update. And, and so for up last six months or so now, I've been kind of taking notes and contemplating how to do this. And uh, I find myself in that process, uh, at least for my own personal website, as I'm reading books. Um, you know, The Elements of Typographic Style uh, is one of my favorite books. I haven't made it all the way through it yet. But the way that the actual page and text is laid out in that book. I open that book up, and I'm just welcomed with a wealth of ideas for my own site in terms of, of the grid structure and how typography mm -hmm. is used. I know Jason Santa Maria, for example, did a lot of that when he was prepping for the uh, a list of art design and, and print material being a large inspiration uh, for that. You know, I find myself doing the same. I think good designers... Uh, are inspired by by material within their genre. I think great designers go far beyond that and are inspired by everything in their environment. So not just a website. For example, if I'm developing a website, I might be inspired by other websites and, and begin by looking at those for inspiration. But I think the talented designers go far beyond that and, and look to offline materials, uh, something in their environment, the color of the walls in their in their office or something like that. I did the logo, for example, just a couple months ago. This was a logo for uh, a company that provides, uh, you know, mobile services. Uh, the typical route might be to, to use an icon that has a phone or, or something that looks very phone-esque. Well, I kind of, in the process of this, 
this logo creation, I stumbled upon an old Nokia. I think it's a 6800. It's one of the ones that one of the ones that flips open. I, I like to call it my bat phone, right? If it ever had a grappling hook or something that shot out of it, it's got like these two handles on it. And so <laughs> I've held on nice. to it for for a few years now. And the long story short, the keypad. If you look at the keypad on this phone, it's a gorgeous keypad. It's got it's got the three columns of keys, but they're laid out in kind of uh, I can't describe it without seeing a picture, uh, but kind of this 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 curve format, and it looks like almost like a set of uh, four sets of angel wings stacked on top of each other, and so that for me became a good deal of inspiration for this logo. In fact, the the, the end logo looks much like the keypad on this Nokia 6800. Um, so I think those that can look beyond just uh, the typical resources that we might think of to use for inspiration uh, then transcend uh, getting stuck in the rut of uh, looking at the CSS gallery sites and, and using that as their sole inspiration for designing a website. you got to look at beyond that at some point, really be influenced by the your environment and the surroundings, uh, whether that be in your office, your home, out, out playing ball with the kids. Uh, you just got to go beyond what exists in a given genre. I actually just Googled for that Nokia 6800, and uh, that really is a cool phone, the way it flips open and gives you actually a full keyboard. Oh, I'll tell you what, I've got four phones right now, in fact, and I keep coming back to this one. I see it's still active. I can still put my SIM card in it. And uh, functionally, it's just an excellent phone. It's small enough that I can put it in my pocket. I've got a, tri- a Trio 650 as well, and that's like carrying a brick around in your pocket. Uh, this one, of course, is half the size. I can slip it in my pocket. And then when I need to really get heavy with some of the text, whether it be texting or, or typing in a, a web address, I can flip that thing open and pop it in. T9 is good, you know, where you can type with numbers and have it... Uh, recognize words that you're creating, but only to a certain point. I mean, it's nice to have that keypad, and I've got a Nokia 6680 as well, which is a very functional uh, Series 60 phone, but but again, I keep coming back to this Nokia 6800 because of its uh, its keypad that flips open and I can type away. Yeah, I've got the 6680. My uh, Trio 650 died, and I actually don't miss it. That, that thing's just <laughs> not done well. <laughs> that brings up an interesting point. You You've done a lot of uh, mobile design work as far as, I know, speaking at conferences. I don't know what other type of design work you've done mobily. Um, I know you don't want to talk about it much anymore, but what are some of the challenges that you face in mobile design? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say I don't want to talk about it anymore. I think I've just decreased how much I talk about it. You know, I I guess let me clarify that. I know a lot about uh, the mobile space, specifically the mobile web, because of research and not necessarily because of actual design experience. It was kind of something I just fell into speaking about because it piqued my interest knowing that at some point we as designers and developers will have to embrace this mobile medium and develop websites for it. I mean, we know that's coming. We talked about this four years ago, and and then we were talking about WAP and and how it's right around the corner. Of course, that never really happened. But now, really, with the the momentum that is behind the mobile web, and just the usefulness of mobile devices now. We're at a point where it's now a reality. Look at Web Visions in in Portland uh, this month. They've got an entire mobile uh, track, and and I would say half of the sessions in that track are about the mobile web. And so I think we're really starting to understand that we're just about there in terms of being able to use the mobile web 
um, and therefore we need to begin preparing for it. So uh, for me, it's been a, a quest to understand how does someone with XHTML and CSS and, and traditional desktop web design knowledge transfer that over? I guess that's the first question. Is it transferable? And if so, how much can I transfer over? And it's been a, a challenging quest, so to speak, um, because it's not as easy as it might look. And, you know, I think with that uh, CSS and standards make it easy to develop for the web on any device, whether that be a phone, a desktop computer, a watch, a vending machine, and so on. But that's not the case. I mean, what we went through with the standards war four, three years ago, and having to, to fight for browser consistency and so on is 10 to 20 times greater in the mobile space because you've got, you know, you've literally got 20 times as many browsers. You've got uh, uh, hundreds of devices and so on. And so how to develop for that, it's a bit chaotic right now, but we're seeing a lot of, of discussion in the industry to try to move it forward. And that was really my intent for getting involved in the mobile web. I wanted to start talking about it so that other people would start talking about it and in helping us understand as designers how to to for, uh, embrace the meeting and not be frightened by it. Well, it's starting to heat up again because we've got the .mobi uh, ex uh, TLD extension getting ready to launch. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of, if you're a mobile company, you can actually register a .mobi right now. It's not until I think April, August 28th that you and I and the average Joe can actually register our, our .mobi domains. But, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. been a battle that's been been raging for some time now and, and only, yet again, makes us question, okay, when does Cameron Mall have to begin devo developing mobile websites? I mean, it really, it's, it's right around the corner. Whether that corner is one to two years remains to be seen, but it, it's, it's coming. It's something that I've got to be aware of, and, and really my intent has just been to, to make other people aware of it and, and help with that transition. What's interesting, and for the first time, actually, um, the .mobi registry is actually going to enforce compatibility guidelines. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, that'll be neat to, I guess, I say neat in, in, in a bizarre way, but it'll <laughs> be neat to see how that pans out, right? Whether or not it's going to be enforceable and, and how much kickback there's going to be. But just the, the mere fact that there are now requirements with a TLD is, is quite interesting. You know, you look at the .org, and I suppose at one time that may have been restricted only to organizations that, of course, fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see what happens with .mobi, if those, if those uh, guidelines and, and requirements are going to hold up, or if it's just after some time people are going to find it foolish that you have to have it coded as, as HTML MP just to get the .mobi and so on. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. You know, with it seems like... the there's just so much work around getting, uh, you know, your CSS and your XHTML to validate in normal websites, let alone, you know, you know, getting it to perfectly validate and, and pass the .mobi standard. I, I just don't I don't know how that's going to work out. Oh, certainly. And I've actually been talking with uh, the W3C, you know, the mobile web initiative. I'm supposed to be doing um, kind of a teleconference with them in the next few weeks about this whole mobile web, the .mobi, and so on. <laughs> and interestingly enough, uh, the the CEO of .mobi, I think it's the CEO, if I recall, is very heavily involved in the mobile web initiative over at the W3C. And in fact, he's been kind of the primary author 
in the best practices best practices document that they put out. And so he's really been working with them to, to collaborate and, and figure out what guidelines are practical and what are not. And so I guess the end result is now going to become that .mobi is going to be very closely tied to those best practices in terms of, you know, if you want a .mobi domain, you've got to adhere to those best practices. In fact, I saw something that's in beta, I think the W3C put together, and that is kind of this best practices validation checker thingy where you can send a, a URL through that, and it, it'll kind of validate against these best practices. It didn't work for me when I tried it a few times. Uh, I did, but supposedly it's supposed to be something where you can actually, much like you validate your HTML, you can kind of validate against these best practices. But but that's just the, the, the big question right now. In the end, how practical is that? Uh, how many of these mobile companies are going to get on board and support this? I mean, that's what remains to be seen at this point. But I think, fortunately, we have organizations like the W3C. Uh, you've got speaking myself and Brian Fling and the others that are Kelly Goto uh, that are starting to talk about this to at least help us understand where the mobile web or just the mobile industry in, in general has been, where it is right now, where it's headed. Getting back to, I guess, the, the desktop design, do you find yourself influenced by design trends that are happening right now. I know there's there's a lot of uh, I guess a lot of flack about web 2.0 design and everyone used to joke about rounded corners and gradients and all that stuff. Do you find yourself being influenced by those designs or do you really find yourself looking externally for ideas? You know, a bit of both. Both. I can't say that I ignore web trends entirely. I don't think any designer can say that they do. I think to do so is to, to lock oneself in a cave and, and kind of design for for his or herself only and not for uh, where an industry might be headed. I think it's important to, to stay on top of those trends, whether or not you actually implement them in your designs. In other words, to be aware of your environment, right, uh, I guess within an industry and, and not necessarily ignore that. Um, I find it funny, though, that, that clients prospective clients who have heard these Web 2.0 buzzwords and, and everything that's happening have actually come to think that Web 2.0 is an, an aesthetic, right? So I've had, <laughs> I've had requests for work that say, I'd like a Web 2.0 um, aesthetic for my website, or I'd like something that complies with the Web 2.0 standard. Well, there's no standard <laughs> for Web 2.0 or, or certain aesthetic, but I think I think people have seen Web wow. 2.0 apps, right, and said, oh, okay, that's what a Web 2.0 uh, app must look like. It's got to have rounded corners. It's got to have gradients. It's got to have large text and so on. Um, you know, I kind of wrote a rant about that a few months ago. I think it was right before... Uh, 2007 and my predictions for this year. Um, you know, I think it's part of the rant was about just that, that we're, we're seeing these huge font sizes, these Fisher Price looking websites, uh, because we've <laughs> got to make everything so easy for the user. I guess my point is, I think it's important to be aware of, of that. I do believe that the this advent of, of Web 2.0 thinking has brought about a lot of good shifts in how we traditionally designed for the web. Um, so I do think we've gotten a bit smarter about understanding how a user will come into a website and where he or she needs to go next and, and how that user will uh, use an application and so on. So I think it's certainly brought uh, 
with it some new thinking that is, is welcomed, but whether or not everything needs to have rounded quarters and gradients and large text, of course, is, is questionable. How do you balance that with um, with clients, like versus your own design aesthetic? I mean, you have clients that are just like diehard. I've got to have rounded corners. <laughs> <laughs> I did have one, and um, somehow made it to made it work fairly well. Vivabit Patrick Griffiths, a great client to work with. Uh, he was actually adamant about having rounded corners at the time, and I'm kind of glad he was. I wasn't too thrilled about it. And uh, somehow we met in the middle and produced what I think is, is a fairly good website. And so, you know, I, you've got to be flexible as a designer, right? But a lot of it has to do with with uh, client and contractor selection. Uh, just as a client may select a contractor based on certain criteria, I as a designer or a contractor will select clients based on certain criteria. So if I know that my contact is so bent on, on some aesthetic or some... Uh, some feature or something that I just outright disagree with, you know, I might think twice about signing a contract with that person before uh, we get into any actual work. And so I think it's a matter of, of understanding at the outset what they're looking for, whether or not I'm a fit for that, and seeing for, seeing if, if, if we'll have a good working relationship moving forward. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, it's going to sound a bit... Egotistic, but for me at this point, I understand usability enough. I understand the web enough that if I design something that that is pleasing to me, chances are it's going to be pleasing to the client. Just because of the knowledge I have of, of users and how they approach the web and the aesthetics when developing for for the web, chances are you know if I like it, the client will as well. And so mm-hmm. I try to, to to take it that way. That you know you've come to me. Trusting me as an expert, let me do my job. There's a pretty good chance I'm going to get it right the first time, and if I don't, well, we're going to revise until we do get it right. And no, well, not to mention you have a portfolio, and I've noticed that the best designers kind of have a. Um, not that all the websites are the same, but each designer has their own feel, which makes him unique and special. Right. And so you kind of know what you're getting into anyway. It's like oh, I like that designer. I kind of like his his feel. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's the reason I, I put selected pieces in my portfolio. Uh, you know, when I blog about projects I've done, it's typically with the intent to let people know, well, of course, what I'm working on, but also this is this is typically what I enjoy doing. This is typically what I can execute well on. You know, if you come to me with, with a certain aesthetic or genre uh, of website that, that may not fit within my my realm of experience or even taste, uh, there might not be a good working experience. Now, that isn't to say that I can't be flexible and design for a wide variety of styles. I think I can, mm-hmm. but as you're saying, you know, a, a designer at some point settles into uh, a certain aesthetic at some point, and I think I'm getting to that point in my career, and therefore, you're right, when clients come to me or other designers that have gotten to that point, they probably know what they're getting into. Uh, they probably come to that designer because they like his or her style, and so most of the requests I get at this point, you know, they typically start off saying, "Hey, Cameron, I love your, I love your side. I, I love the sites in your portfolio. I've got this project. Can you help me out?" And so I think they do know what they're looking for in a designer, what kind of visuals they might bring to the table. Yeah, that make that makes sense. In uh, episode 16, we talked to Jason Santa Maria about how he keeps himself motivated as a freelancer. 
Um, and he said sometimes it, it's hard when there's three episodes of MacGyver on in a day. But uh, how, how do you find <laughs> you, you keep yourself motivated uh, to work on this stuff? Oh, that's, that's so true. I mean, it's to be a freelancer, uh, it's difficult to stay motivated and to stay on track. And I don't think that's necessarily because I don't have interest in doing so. Of course I do. But I think the, the, the term free and freelancer is part of the problem, right? So I've got the freedom to do as I choose and to, to execute as I please. And sometimes with that much freedom, it actually inhibits um, staying focused and, and staying on track because I might spend X amount of time uh, reading blogs. I might spend X amount of time uh, chatting you know, online or something along those, those lines. And so for me... I guess to stay focused and to avoid those those reruns of MacGyver, I was a huge <laughs> MacGyver fan, but who wasn't, <laughs> yeah, really? you know? And uh, and um, and then when they put Dukes of Hazard on just a, a couple couple months ago or a year ago or so, that that kind of threw things out of whack as well. <laughs> but um, you know, for me to stay motivated at this point, it really has involved a good deal of saying no. Um, so I've started saying no to, you know my feed reader, uh, reading that less, you know, refreshing those feeds only once a day versus several times a day, or uh, I am in less, or, or multi, even multitasking less. I think when, when I multitask, I actually find that I get less done, because I'm so focused on getting 20 things done instead of one solid thing that I actually end up at the end of the day having done less than had I focused on two or three uh, good things, and so... You know, I find myself saying no a lot. Kind of like the book, too. I had to say no to that, and that was partly because I knew I didn't have the time and dedication to, to make it happen. And, so, and same with, with conference speaking and, and writing articles and so on. I often have to say no to a lot of that just so I don't have to try to do so many things at once. That's funny you should talk about, um, you know, reducing multitasking because I, I just started, uh, I got an idea from, I'm a big reader of 43 folders, which uh-huh. I probably need to read less and do more. But uh, um, it's kind of like the idea of a blitz where you say, okay, for the next, you know, I like, to, I like, I like an hour because an hour is a pretty good amount of time to get a block of work done. Um, just for the next hour, I'm going to shut down all my IM, I'm going to shut down the email, everything, and I'm just going to work on this a piece of this project here. And, you know, I actually have this cool little uh, this desktop widget that's a timer, and I go for an hour. And without doing anything else. And it really is. It's super productive. Yeah, it seems like at some point, let's say for me, I don't know what the, the actual time period is, but at some point, say 15, 30 minutes into a task, I really start to get into a zone. And so if I've got an hour to work on something, um, it's really those last 30 minutes that are most productive. And so if I'm 20 minutes into that hour and I get yanked away with an, I, with a, an IM or a phone call or something along those lines... Um, I lose out on that hitting that that zone part and really getting into it and really understanding, uh, you know, how to execute well on a project. I actually don't post my phone number uh, in my portfolio or on my website or anything like that because of that. Uh, I, I love responding to clients and, and prospects, but I want to make sure that I can do that at a time where I, I focus my attention and don't have the phone ringing in the middle of a design project. It's one thing to to secure new business and to look down the road to, to fill up the calendar. It's another thing to, to forget what you have on the table already and to mm-hmm. execute on that. And so I, I totally agree. I mean, I've got 
you know, kids will come in sometimes. My boys mm-hmm. love to come in and, and talk to dad. And, and there are times where I've just got to lock the door, put the headphones on and barrel down and, and uh, execute. I think execution is the key. We, we talked about that in our, our last episode. Um, so we've, we've come to this point in the show. We always ask everyone, are there any <laughs> super secret projects that you're working on that you just want to reveal publicly here on the Web 2.0 show? A super secret project that I'm working on, huh? <laughs> I'd say a book, but I don't know if I'm ever going to sign a deal to do a book. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've, I guess, along those lines of, of book writing, we actually toyed with some some self publishing. Well, that remains to be seen whether or not we'll uh, actually go through with that. I've been looking at that seriously. Yeah, have you looked at um, things like Lulu and like um, the like the Pragmatic Programmers Friday series? You know what? I've heard of them, but haven't looked at them in depth yet. Tell me a little bit about them. Uh, well, well, the the Pragmatic Programmers has this. Um, they call it the Friday series. And they're actually PDFs, and instead of a full-blown book, uh, I believe they're like what less than a hundred pages, yeah. something like that. And it's a very concentrated, focused discussion on a topic. You know, it's like, all right, we're going to do this one thing. And they yeah, sell for uh, like I forget what they like sell for, like between five yeah, and ten bucks. 10 bucks yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's precisely what we're talking about. I think the time is coming that uh, for me to sit down, and, and I think. A lot of other people as well. I've talked to several people in the last uh, couple of weeks alone about this. Uh, it's tough to sit down and digest an entire 300-page book or even read 50 to 75% of it over the course of a month or two. I think there are certainly people that enjoy doing that and can do that. But with how fast our economy is moving and how fast-paced we typically are, uh, there seems to be a good need for shorter reads, uh, something that I can read in 50 pages instead of 300, and still come close to achieving the same value from it. Or, as you're saying, something that's on a very specific topic instead of uh, covering a broad spectrum of, say, CSS, maybe something that talks about absolute positioning and absolute positioning only. You know, that mm-hmm. it seems there's there's a hole right now in uh, in... I guess technical learning that could be filled by by shorter reads. So I don't know. I've been toying with that. We'll see whether or not I uh, actually go through with something along those lines. Yeah, I think it's a great idea because for me, a lot of the things I want to find a topic that helps me solve a specific problem that I have. Oh, like sure. um, like I'm reading like right now. I just downloaded uh, one. It's actually not a, a, pro, a Friday series. It's actually from O'Reilly, but it's um, on RJS templates and Rails, which is uh, JavaScript templates. And it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's a good read, and it's short. I had to print it off at Kinko so I can carry it around. And I would love to see just a ton more, you know, these small, high-quality PDFs that, that help me solve a specific problem. Oh, certainly. Yeah, that's a good one, absolute positioning. I'd like to see that. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'll be the one writing on that. But, you know, it's, it's funny uh, what you cling on to as a designer, especially a CSS coder, and that's absolute positioning. I don't think I'm going to... I have no plans right now, in fact, to, to write something along those lines. But mm-hmm. I've enjoyed, uh, speaking of absolute positioning, using that. Uh, you know, there's just so many facets of, of design and coding uh, that, that one might cling on to, whether it be absolute positioning or, or something else. And um, I think it's fun to interact with people who have specialty. You, you two both uh, specialize in, in things vastly different than what I do, for example, or me. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what, that, that's what makes the... 
the, the blogosphere, so to speak, so exciting right now is to read other people's thinking, you know, people that yeah. talk about rails or people that talk about uh, the DOM or things like that, and to, to really bounce ideas off each other. And, and you create this universe of all these different talents and, and expertise, and I think that's why we've grown to love blogs and, and everything else, conferences and so on, is to really feed off of that collective energy. Yeah, I have a wide variety of blogs. I, you know, I have a, a couple designer blogs. Actually, Authentic Boredom is one of them. And, you know, a couple photographers' blogs, you know, quite a few Rails blogs, of course. And then um, just some various other topics just that are just, uh, you know, just fun to read. And it's fun to learn other stuff outside of your niche. Absolutely. So as a, as a designer, who do you read? Who's in your feed reader? All right, so getting back to this question about uh, staying focused and so on, uh, you know, I'd gone the typical route of, of just throwing a ton of RSS feeds into your feed reader and then trying to, to, to stay on top of that. Um, I found I just can't really digest as much as I'd like to digest or that I was skimming. I've always had a bad habit of skimming things very loosely, whether that's in, in newspaper, in blogs, uh, books, you name it. I skim just to get kind of the gist of what's there, and then I never dive deep enough. And I've kind, of, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm sick of doing that. And I really want to dive deeper into, specific, say, a half dozen topics instead of 30 topics. And so I've actually pared my my uh, reading down to about 20 sites right now, probably about 15 maybe, um, that, I, that I frequent versus 100 plus that I was doing before. Um, so a lot of those that are in there are sites that I feel, it's kind of the 80-20. I wrote probably a good year and a half ago about this idea of the 80-20 rule. The Pareto rule. Yeah, right, right. That you could get, you know, 80% of, at least speaking about blogs, I could get 80% mm -hmm. of the technical knowledge that I needed from 20% of the blogs out there. Actually, I, I made the argument that it was actually 20 people at that time. <laughs> and uh, I think that rule, in some respects, still holds true. And so I'll read Kudal, I'll read uh, Kotke, I'll read um, uh, so a few of the CSS galleries that are out there, StyleGal, and of course I contribute some of the news to that site. Um, anything that I find that produces a good mixture of, of, of uh, deep content um, and also external links. So someone like Kudal and Kotke have excellent links uh, that I might not be aware of. Or, or uh, things that are very specific on a topic like Style Gala that I can really dive into and get my in-depth technical knowledge from. So. Like I say, I've, I've really pared things down at this point, and it's only a handful of sites that I frequent on a daily basis. Yeah, I pared down uh, quite a bit. I just switched over to Newsfire this, just this past weekend. Hey, you had to cut out Dave Weiner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just uh, he's a smart guy, but um, it's I just can't keep up with him. Well, it's kind of like Engadget, too, right? Oh, yeah, that was yeah. awful. You either have someone who's so technical... Or you have a site like Engadget, like I can never read everything that they post. Yeah. Uh, they, I just cannot stay on top of it. So find yourself Too always much. marking all as red. <laughs> <laughs> no, no kidding. As soon as I start doing that, I'm like, all right, it's, you're posting too much. It's time to just kill the kill the feed. <laughs> I look for you people know, who have like one to three quality posts a week. <laughs> you know, that's funny too. I have a lot of readers that uh, I've seen comments about my own site or about other sites. You know, I've had people contacting me saying, why don't you write more? But I've had a lot of them that, that will write me and say, you know what, I appreciate you uh, writing with the frequency that you do because it's typically a pretty potent post when you do. And so I think there are a lot of people that do really well with, with writing short tidbits 
um, you know, several a day or, or many a week. There are others that write uh, one a week or two strong articles a week. And I've kind of gone that route. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily advocate one route over the other, but I certainly think there's, there's reason, uh, good reason, in publishing less with more quality content than publishing frequently with kind of semi-interesting content. There's a market for everything, though. Yep. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Cameron. Hey, yeah, thanks, well, thanks a lot. for having me, guys. Yeah, cool. Anytime. This has been a Steel Pixel production. For more information about Steel Pixel, you can check out steelpixel.com. Or for more information about the show, feel free to check out web20show.com. That's W-E-B-2-0-S-H-O-W.com. 